Hello, and welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. I am joined this week by... Do I, do I go first or does Dana go first? I'll go first. I'm Nick Hanover. Uh, Nick Hanover here with... Uh, I guess I'm just mercenary now. I'm not necessarily with any, anyone. Although I am with your chicken enemy, Daniel site. That's true. So I'm Daniel Elkin yes. from Your Chicken Enemy. I guess I am too, since uh, you have an article from me to to uh, line edit as well. That's true. Wow. So you're, yeah, we're all kind of free, I guess. Although I got this podcast thing going, which is pretty fun, actually. Yeah. It's my new obsession. Now that the book's out, I have so much less stress in my life. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that book ate up a lot of your time. Yeah, that was four years of my life. Uh, so we just actually uh, shipped the Steve Gerber book with its pretty much final edits off to University Press in Mississippi on Thursday. So the last thing is to get the galleys and do a final readover and clean up, and then that book's going to be out in July. Wonderful. Has anyone done a book on, on Gerber before? No. No one's done a full book on Gerber before. That's crazy to me because he's he's just such an interesting figure in so many ways. He is this transcendent guy who just did the, these the, some of the most amazing comics ever. Uh, it's not forgotten, but he's kind of shunted off to the side, I think, these days. Yeah. Which I suppose is fine. I mean, history moves on. But uh, as we'll talk about in a minute, his work is amazing. Yeah. But especially with all the creator rights stuff that's going on, you would think that people would be reevaluating Gerber more since he was so pivotal to that. Yeah, we should mention that a little bit because um, yeah, he was really one of the most instrumental figures in, in creative rights. Uh, you could almost say he was martyred on the altar of creative rights in some ways. Yeah. Um, he's pretty he's pretty well established as the single creator of Howard the Duck who appeared as a, kind of a random character in Fear 19, starring the Man-Thing, which is a bizarre, bonkers story, which we'll probably get to at some point. Um, and long story short, he ended up suing Marvel over the rights to his creation, Howard the Duck. Mm -hmm. um, actually took Marvel to court, and they had an out-of-court settlement, which uh, Gerber was never able to divulge the, the facts of during his lifetime. But... Um, he ended up with some rights and some um, royalties based on the character. And, and he so, did the Destroyer Duck. And he did Destroyer <laughs> Duck with Jack Kirby. Yeah. Uh, to fight for his creator rights. And he had, uh, that's actually that's the first appearance of Gru the Wanderer, among many other yep. things. Um, as part so of that, this campaign was, for him to gain his creator rights. Was Destroyer Duck, that was designed for his legal fees, right? It was a fundraiser for his legal fees, one of the first books also that Eclipse Publishing put out. Uh, so it's all these, this whole confluence of different events all happened at the same time. Um, this little tiny company, Eclipse, which was um, basically a fan publication, uh, fan publisher, rather. Um, they just put out McGregor and Glacey's Saber, which is one of the first graphic novels, indie graphic novels by mainstream creators. They were then building a reputation. Gerber went to them and said, can you publish this comic? It's a fundraiser I'd like to do with Jack Kirby. Um, Kirby and uh, Kirby and Steve Gerber had worked together at Hanna-Barbera Studios, so they were friends, and they kind of put this comic together in their spare time. And it's just a scathing, nasty-ass story that's uh, just vicious about the little man fighting for justice against an uncaring corporation. And there are scenes where, like, the little man who's Destroyer Duck, who's, you know, obviously a proxy for... Uh, proxy for Gerber's anger, um, like pulls the spine out of a Stan Lee character. <laughs> it's like this incredibly ultra-violent, nasty shit. Um, yeah. Which is just, uh, it's so good. And it's uh, like ridiculously out of print, right? Like you can't get that in anything? No, no. It's one of those books that will never be reprinted either. Right. They end up doing like seven or eight issues of it, but most of the rest of them aren't very good. The first issue, though, is amazing, but it's out of print and it's rare because it's the first brew, so it's like a $100 book. Yeah. Um, it is. I think. Oh, man, I should sell my bed. Now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Gerber's, Gerber's really important historically, as well as just important as a, as a creative force. What, what was his first book? Really, his first book was The Man Thing. Really? We did a, a couple of uh, like one-off horror stories, 
And then they basically gave him the man thing as like, hey, kid, here's your first story. We'll give you a monster book that no one's going to read. Have fun with it. And uh, then, so he started that adventure to fear number 11. That was his, like, his first one. Yeah, fear number 12 was his first issue. Okay. And, um, you know, it, again, it was like one of these books that they had no expectations for. It was traditional at that time for uh, Marvel to, and I'm pulling up, I'm pulling up my bibliography here of Gerber's work. Um, it's traditional at the time for Marvel to give their new writers these kind of junk assignments. And he just flew with it. I mean, within, what, two or three issues, that comic really started to come alive. The first couple stories are a little mediocre, but then there's this energy to it that he brings to the work very quickly that makes it exciting. Yeah, and exciting in this like kind of uh, different way. That issue 17 with Wondar, uh-huh. uh, oh, yeah. Superman proxy, that is crazy. Isn't that where Angar the Screamer comes from, too? It's like around that same... That's another Gerber creation for Daredevil. Oh, okay, I couldn't remember if it was in Daredevil or in that one. Yeah, uh, so um, I just pulled up the bibliography. So um, 72, he wrote for Fear... He had a two-issue run on Incredible Hulk and Shenna the She-Devil. By 73, he was writing Man-Thing in Fear. Oh, wow, I just saw it. I just found an error in my book. Uh, Daredevil. <laughs> um, he wrote a, a one-part uh, Iron, villain Iron Man, Shenna, Submariner, the Zombie, and Morbius and Vampire Tales. So by 1973, he was writing six series at once. Whoa. And then from there, he just kept going and going. 74, he wrote Man-Thing and Morbius. Morbius is just a psychotronic, amazing comic. Yeah, um, Morbius Daredevil, is Daredevil, Man-Thing, Son of Satan. It's also a crazy, wonderful book. <laughs> the Submariner. Like, he was writing, like, six or seven titles a month. Plus, he was on staff. He actually edited Crazy Magazine that year. So, you know, my pet theory about Gerber is that, like, when he during those years when he was writing so quickly... He wasn't he wasn't uh, filtering his work at all. So it's whatever came to his mind is what he threw on the page, and so like the second half of his man thing work especially is all first draft, and it's all this kind of id all conveyed there on the page. A little like a pulp writer like Philip K. Dick uh, wrote during much of his career, where it was unfiltered, and I think that gives it this power that yeah. uh, you'll get otherwise. Because he was basically given a lot of titles that they just weren't really looking at or caring about so he, he was able to do more yeah hey kid uh, just do what you can for now and we'll uh we'll we'll uh allow you to find your own voice it's a unique time too because no one would ever get away with that today right yeah and it's kind of a similar thing to what don mcgregor was able to do with jungle action right yeah yeah uh and that's definitely a topic for another podcast but uh because <laughs> i could talk forever about don but uh I don't want to do all the talking either. So, um, Daniel, you mentioned you were rereading, you had reread some of the Manthing issues. Yeah, just to and sort of preparation for this. And I just, you know, th some of them just go so either into deep, deep pathos, or they just go into this weird, wild place that just has d no filter whatsoever, like you were saying. <laughs> um, it's uh, just a wild ride. And I, I was one of the couple of questions I had going back through it is he seemed to go through artists quite a lot. Was that just the way it was back in those days? Yeah, it was. Um, it, it is kind of like spook, not spooky, but it, it feels so off-putting that he switches so quickly from like John Buscema to Val Merrick to Gene Colan. And don't forget um, Mike Plug. And your your man Mike Plug. Oh, and those Plug issues are beautiful. They are. Um, but yeah, just the way things were at the time. It's the oh, okay. of the so, chaos of Marvel. So he wasn't Nothing like no, Gerber. notorious for burning out artists or anything like that? No, no, no. And like um, Morbius, I think, has... No, it's it's Son of Satan has six artists and six issues or something. It has nothing to do with him. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, going back through that, like, it, it really struck me like... There, there's stories that are basically uh, like Conan type stories. There's um, the, the whole story with Jennifer Kale kind of coming to life as a 
uh, magician herself too. Yeah. That, that any of this? Blew- yeah. Do you think any of this was plotted out, or he was just like put it out of his ass and just running with it? No, I mean, I think he was pulling it out of his ass and just running with it. I think it was almost <laughs> automatic writing, Daniel. It was interesting that it, the last issue of Fear is when he introduces Howard the Duck, right? And then right. Man Thing becomes its own title. In the middle of a two-part storyline, which is also yeah. so Marvel 70s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was just looking at the publication history for it. I was just like, wow, there's a, a lot going on here with the, the structure of this, this comic. But then man, the, the title that he was working on, just Man-Thing title, he only lasted, well, only 22 issues, right? Plus five giant-size issues, oh, right? Oh, yes, the giant-size. <laughs> <laughs> the the uh, giant-size X-Men, or giant, oh, geez. Yeah. Okay, I have to edit that out. The <laughs> giant-size Man-Thing. Yeah, classic. So they say that that was an unintentional double entendre, but I feel like, with Gerber, that can't possibly be true. He, he had to know what he was doing, right? Yeah, I think so. Because his comics are full of that sort of stuff. I remember, I don't know which Man-Thing, which giant size one it was, but I had a reprint of his as a kid. And it's the one where where they're fighting, where it's like Howard the Duck fighting a vampire cow. Yes. It's the backup to giant size Man-Thing number four, right. which is... <laughs> Arguably the greatest comic of the 1970s, by the way. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah um, I read that thing until it literally fell apart. When I, it was like <laughs> one of my favorite comics. <laughs> Everything about it was great. Correct the man frog. Right. And what, what was the vampire cow's name that's in it? Oh, my It has God. a cape and everything. Yeah. Drawn by Frank Bruner. Wait, now I'm going to look this up. Because it's basically like Howard the Duck. It, is like trying to track down a vampire that's haunting the area. And then they reveal that it's this cow and it's like a, you know, traditional looking dairy cow that happens to have a Dracula cape and fangs. Uh, And I just loved that image so much because it was just so absurd, which is kind of Gerber in a nutshell. (laughs) Gerber in a nutshell is, is absurd. Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, where is it? And that was like okay. a... That was five. Okay. Go ahead. Well, and there was... Alex Segura had done like a thing recently asking people on Twitter, like one of the first, you know, what was the first credit that you remember seeing on a comic that stood out to you and you wanted to like track down that person more? And I I'd said Charles Vess because that was the actual first one because I had that Spider-Man Spirits of the Earth uh, graphic novel and everything about that just stood out to me but the second one was definitely that howard the duck vampire hunting thing where i'm just like who wrote this like even as like a six-year-old i'm just like <laughs> what is this thing <laughs> it's hell cow hell cow there we go. <laughs> of course it is of course it's hell cow and i'll uh i'll post um an image for this from into the uh oh i just can't talk today i'm sorry Oh, you're good. Uh, I'll post uh, images from this on the on the uh, classic comics cavalcade Tumblr. Yeah, so. because it, it it's just it has to be my favorite Howard the Duck image, period. And there's a lot of great Howard the Duck ones, but just the reveal of this cow and the cape is what really sells it for me. The <laughs> fact that it has a Dracula cape on, you just have so many questions. Right. It, it's just. It's just brilliant, and it's so Gerber-esque. It's so, like, ridiculously stupid, and yet brilliant at the same time. Yeah, and they take it completely seriously, because, you know, Howard the Duck has to stop Hellcow from terrorizing everything. And I see now that Hellcow has, has been in other comics, but I, I will always just love the original Hellcow. Yeah, Gerber was um, the first creator who I remember paying any attention to. I was actually uh, recording another podcast with our old friend Zach Davison yesterday. Um, and Zach was like, how did you, you, you obviously paid attention to creators very early. And I like, 
when I was like nine and ten years old buying Gerber comics off the newsstand, I remember paying attention to him because his work was just so different from everybody else's. Yeah. I mean, you've heard how I fetishize his Omega the Unknown. Oh, yeah, and, which is a, another great comic that he kind of got fucked over on. Yeah, yeah. Um, was that, yeah, that got, was his creation? Oh, yeah, him with his friend Mary Screenus. Screens, I'm not sure how you say her name. Um, and that was completely his creation. He never, he, this before Marvel gave rights to anything. So he didn't own the rights. So that's why the series was unfinished in part because they were never willing to invest the money in allowing him to finish it. Yeah, and the direction that it goes in after him is just so sad. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. How many, um, how many original creations did he come up with? Oh, gosh. Well, so this is actually, that's a good question. So is the Man-Thing Gerber's creation? So he didn't actually create it, right? The Man-Thing yeah. was created um, by Roy Stanley. Thomas and Neil Adams and Stan Lee in part, right? But also, like, who gave this character its shambling life and filled it up filled it up with what made him himself? It's really Gerber. Mm-hmm. And this is... Uh, it's one of those interesting questions on, like, what does it mean to create something? Is it just to create the costume, or is it to, or the the being, or to fully flesh it out? Because you can argue that Gerber created Man Thing, um, even though he didn't. Right. But I, I mean, Howard would be the the number one thing that people think of for Gerber creating, um, and you know, Omega the Unknown was never actually named Omega in the comics, which is my favorite little bits of trivia. Hell Cow and few other villains like that. Winky Man, uh, you know. Uh, well, Kitty Later. Uh, Kitty Lady. all the ones that are in Defenders, too. There's yeah. Like well, the, the headmen who fought the Defenders in that amazing 12-part storyline, um, from then, the only one he created was Ruby Thursday, which is the woman with the globe for her head who had who could shoot oh, yeah. out of her. Um, but um, the rest of them were all created... Uh, and it appeared several months before an issue of Weird Wonder Tales, which is a Marvel reprint book of the time. And he pulled them all together and, and had them be the villains in his story. So, like, the ape man <laughs> is never named Arthur Nagin and is never given neuroses, but he's actually a character in these stories. Which I think right. it's just also, like, this random greatness of, of Gerber. Yeah, he also well, created uh, Elf with the Gun, right? Oh, yeah. And... Oh, yeah. One of and my fool- favorites that's like totally absurd is Fool Killer, which I've written about, which uh, it first appears in Man Thing. Yeah. As it's like, and is originally basically just like a, a like preacher who goes off the rails, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just reread the 1990 Fool Killer strip today. And now you yeah. wrote about it, Nick. So yes. what's your, what was your take on it? Well, so that one, that is the, I need to make sure I get the right timeline because there's, there's been multiple Fool Killers. And the Fool Killer series in the 90s is two of them, which is Greg Salinger and Kurt Gerhardt. Yes, yeah. So um, I went into that series, I think, like, I knew it was Gerber, so I knew it would be weird. But the thing that was, like, strangest to me was I... I I didn't really know too much about Gerber's return to Marvel in the 90s, like when he was doing like a few series here and there. I mostly knew his 70s output and then the stuff that he was doing at like Vertigo and elsewhere um, in the mid 90s. But so like this whole thing with his random Marvel works in the early 90s was kind of a mystery to me. So I picked this one up mainly because the um, I was curious about the artist who worked on it, uh, which is J.J. Birch who I had encountered in some Punisher issues and was just kind of intrigued by his art. And he also did the really fantastic Catwoman year one uh, Mm -hmm. comic that I love. And I think is like severely underappreciated. So it was as much like wanting to see more JJ Birch work as wanting to read this bizarre Gerber creation. But the thing that stood out to me most about it is even though it's, it's like a, it's definitely a flawed comic. (laughs) There's a lot going on. Um, but it feels like Gerber's angriest work ever, mm-hmm. which says a lot. Uh, it's, it's scathing and brutal and it, it's got like brutality that you don't normally see in Gerber stuff. Like there's children getting vaporized and like 
pregnant women being vaporized and just all kinds of really brutal imagery. Um, but outside of all the problematic aspects of it, it actually holds up pretty well in some regards, specifically with how it treats toxic masculinity, because the whole comic is basically about this guy, Kurt Gerhardt, who just uh, is so mad that his life is not going as easily as he thinks it should, since he's this very generic, mediocre white man. Um, and he just kind of feels that he's owed all this stuff. And he's initially being used by Gregory Salinger. To Gregory Salinger is kind of popping up on like talk shows and having his appearances and Kurt Gerhardt thinks that he's basically speaking directly to him and telling him to go do these things. And at first Salinger is kind of like pushing him and encouraging it because he's trapped in a mental facility and can't do any of the vigilante stuff on his own. But then he becomes kind of horrified by what Gerhardt is actually doing and how extreme Gerhardt is getting with it. And that Gerhardt is not really punishing the people that Salinger thought should be punished. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a really weird, fucked up comic. It's just so dark, too. I mean, he, he it is a great satire of toxic masculinity, also of kind of men being lost in society and not knowing how to resurrect their lives. Yeah, that's um, exactly yeah what's going on. Because he continually has opportunities to, to make himself less isolated, but he chooses to become more isolated and then becomes more and more fanatical. Right. Um, I was struck that aside from some of the technology stuff, how it feels modern. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially with all the, the like, 24-hour news show stuff that goes on in it and those, like, personalities. And, yeah, there's definitely a lot of things that sync up with our current dystopia. <laughs> there's scenes where uh, the, there's a TV host has a kind of a rah-rah kind of right-wing uh, show and they pretend to kill the fool killer in a number of episodes of the show and they play right. that against the real life of the actual character and it, it feels like something that you can imagine on the Hannity show. Yeah, yeah, or Bill O'Reilly, like it's it's got that sort of thing to it or even Alex Jones in some some ways. Yeah, yeah it's, it's pretty yeah, bizarre. Alex Jones is an even better analogy for it because it's, it's got that kind of edgy, uh, kind of just disgusting super right-wing feel to it. And yeah, you can and easily imagine... Yeah, and you can easily imagine Gerhard becoming this guy who's, like, embracing the conspiracies, you know, becoming a 9-11 truther or, exactly. or a Sandy Hook truther. Because he just seems to fall prey to this uh, toxic masculinity, this, this classic man, middle-aged man who's falls outside of society um, and just refuses to ever really pull himself up. He goes down his own very dark road. Well, he's just so extreme in his reactions to everything, too, because, like, he has bad things that happen to him. Like, his father dies during... He kind of has a Batman-style origin, but, like, as a large adult son instead of a, a tiny toddler. Um, and he... When it, like, his father gets killed in this robbery over just, like, a small amount of money, and that kind of causes him to, like, become unhinged. But all the pe most of the people that he's going for are not really... Like, you know, he's going after, like, drug addicts and, like, people who just look at him the wrong way. <laughs> it's just, like, it goes above and beyond what any person would react to. But I think that was Gerber trying to kind of point out how stupid characters like the Punisher are in the wrong hands. Um, and I think it wasn't, like, a coincidence that he was working with the Punisher artist on this. And mm -hmm. but Yeah, it's this extremely dark satire. Uh, it's as if the Punisher went just a little further. And it also does line up with the original appearances of the first Fool Killer. It just uh, takes it to another level. And it's, But what's also kind of eerie about it is it's a response to the massive crime wave that we were experiencing in the late 80s and early 90s. And it's almost this primal scream of anger about the way that we're abusing ourselves and abusing our society. And so there's this odd mix of satire and sincerity in the book. Um, that just makes it more unnerving. Yeah, yeah. Especially with his interactions with uh, the woman that he's dating that he, like, runs into from work um, who doesn't really know how <laughs> disturbing this guy actually is. Which is, like, one of the, the creepiest parts of the book, too, is that you know what he's doing. And there's all these people around him who are, like, sweet and innocent who don't know anything about what he's really getting up to. Um, and it's weird because... 
every time Marvel has brought this character back since, it's like they have no idea what the point of the character was because like Max Bemis did a version of it where he was basically turning into a Deadpool style book, uh, which is I, I just don't understand at all how you could read this and be like, yes, yeah, this needs to be some zany. Uh, dark comedy type things and it's like this is not a funny book like Gerber's a funny writer but this is not a funny book you read it right Daniel Uh, I read just a little of it I haven't read the whole thing of Gerber's (laughs) run Um, yeah but I remember being disturbed disturbed that somebody felt the need to really uh, pursue some of that stuff to me, the signature moment of the book is him doing push, getting designed to get into shape, and doing push-ups and sit-ups in piles of garbage. Yes, the garbage yes. is home to me. I thrive in it. It strengthens me. Yes, it's like so that's my favorite panel. <laughs> it's I, so I've gotten dark. so much use out of that panel to like talk about comics Twitter anytime something happening. <laughs> <laughs> that seems so appropriate, right? Um, yeah it's just such a ludicrous moment but then the the thing that defines it for me is when he decides to kill the kid though when he he encounters this kid who like is on crack because basically he's in a crack house uh and he he's mad at himself not because he killed this kid but because he botched the killing of the kid so much so like the kid throws a knife at him and then he shoots the kid and at first he just obliterates and this is like a like an actual child like this is like maybe an eight-year-old boy and he messes it up who he sees smoking a crack pipe exactly uh which already on its own like that's just like a terrible image like even before you have child murder happening and then he shoots the, the kid's arm off with his his ray gun and the kid's still alive, and then he shoots him again, but he just splits him in half. And so then he has to do it. It's just like, like it's not enough for Gerber to have this this child being like on crack, um, in a crack den, gets his arm blown off by a ray gun, and then gets blown in half by the ray gun, and then finally gets put out of his misery. So it's just like you just get just this horrible series of calamities with this. And this was in a, this wasn't like a, a Marvel graphic novel. This was a newsstand comic with the Comics Code Authority stuff on the front of it. Like there was, this was not like a Marvel Max comic that didn't even exist yet. You know, this was like just out there for anybody, um, which blows this, my mind. This was the Fool Killer title? Just This was just in the regular Fool Killer comic in the 90s, yeah. Yeah, yeah so I have issue seven, uh, six, yeah, seven up on my on my laptop here and he said he, the seven begins with him with a gun in his mouth pretending to blow his brains out or thinking about blowing his brains out and the narration here is so spooky it's three shots is this how i plan to combat the new age of barbarism by murdering children a piece at a time is that my contribution to the cause of civilization the rage gnaws it does and it's just like so the other thing about this book is we get his his internal monologue. So yeah. we're meant to feel empathy for this character who's so insane, so over the top, and so mentally ill. Yeah. Um, it's just a deeply unsettling experience. Does, yeah. Gerber so ever, fucked up. does Gerber ever moralize in this book? Does he ever come to some sort of conclusion as to how we're supposed to feel about this guy? Well, no, and that's the thing that I find the most fascinating about this, um, that there's no, first of all, there's no editorial material in it whatsoever. None. So there's no commentary at all for him, from him about this. And then secondly, um, no, it's treated, he's treated completely neutrally. Um, it's the Gerber's telling a story of this character, but he's not judging him in any way. Uh, and we're not meant to, I, I get the impression we're not meant to feel anything other than to experience what this man is going through. But um, I don't know. Do you feel at any point that you were meant to feel some empathy for him? Well, so th- that's the thing that's tricky about this book is I don't, I don't know exactly what Gerber was trying to say with it because y- you're right that there's all these 
moments where you're supposed to feel for him and he you see like why he becomes this way and he's faced you know tragedy in his life but you also get the sense that he was messed up even before his dad died mm -hmm. there's all these indications that he was already there was something wrong with him before that and that's probably why he went this way but then the book ends on <laughs> like nothing happens to him he gets away mm -hmm. with everything. He fakes his death and gets away with everything. And that's pretty bleak. Yeah. Like, even by, like, it's, it, you know, it's, it's probably the bleakest ending that I've seen in this type of work. Because normally, even in these kind of, like, rage fantasy things, the, the hero, like, suffers a lot or, or, like, dies or almost dies or, like, repents. Uh, there's none of that in here. He basically gets away with it all in the end. And he, the moment that you're talking about where he almost kills himself, that's, like, the last moment that he expresses any emotion whatsoever mm -hmm. or any semblance of conscience. Uh, after that, he's just, he just doesn't even care anymore. So what I had written in my essay on it, I had said the best commentary Gerber provides in Fool Killers is notion that white male rage can justify any target it wants to, that the men who succumb to it are capable of transforming reality. So they become not only the true victims, but also the only ability with, uh, the only people with the ability to save reality. Mm -hmm. mm. And I, that's kind of what I feel Gerber was trying to get across here is that these types of like rageful white men, um, they distort the reality around them. And they are usually the ones who don't suffer the consequences for any of this stuff. So anyone else who might have righteous anger is more likely to suffer consequences. Uh, like a good example would have been what was going on with Lorena Bobbitt around the same time that this comic was released, where Everything that she had suffered, the abuse from her partner, all this stuff was just wiped out of the picture. And all anyone talked about was her cutting off her husband's penis and throwing it in a field. And it was mm -hmm. treated almost comically. And like no one wanted to even acknowledge that there might be a reason why someone would be so mad at another person and had suffered so much. Um, and I kind of feel like that's the type of stuff that Gerber was wanting to point out was that these types of men get away with, with their, what they're doing. And in a way, they are able to distort reality because even with people like Dylan Roof or like these other shooters that we've seen, how many pieces have you seen in the media being like, he was a quiet boy. Right. Um, everyone was talked about how polite he was. No one would have thought that this would go on or what could possibly have gone wrong to cause this person to behave this way. And they all believe that what they were doing was valiant too, you know, yeah. and, and that stuff was going on at this time as well. But I think that it's especially terrifying that we're kind of like living in the peak reality of what is presented in this and that these types of white male shooters are going off and killing these people that they think they need to kill in order to preserve their version of reality or bring it back or make it great again or whatever um and they a lot of them like are coming out of it relatively unscathed you know <laughs> like so so yeah, it's just it, that's the part that stood out to me. And I uh, granted a lot of that is looking at it from the perspective of now versus like when it was written. I have no idea how this would have come across reading it when it actually came out. Um, I might have a totally different feeling on it. Do Do we know much about Gerber's history about what his childhood was like and all that sort of stuff? Well, so I. I, I... I was gonna. I was gonna actually. I found a quote that he gave to Kim Howard Johnson in an issue of Comic Scene in 1993, where he talks about this book. He <laughs> says, um, "Honest, I honestly think the best thing I've ever done in comics, though, is probably the Fool Kill Killer limited series. It goes deeper into a single character without relying on cliches than anything I've done prior to that time. The rules I set for myself with that book, though, were no easy outs." Whatever happens has to be absolutely believable. The one fantasy element is the ray gun. Everything else has to be completely plausible or it doesn't get in the book. That forced me to really look at the character as a human being in a real environment and try to predict what a character like that would do and why he would do it. I'm really proud of what I did with the characterizations. I don't think I've done anything that remotely resembles it. Yeah. That's kind of dark, actually. It is. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you were asking about his background, Daniel, and yeah. so Gerber, his degree was in communications, and I think that this work, along with Omega the Unknown, is probably where that comes through the most, because this whole, Fool Killer, like, the, the, 
the real villain in Full Killer is the like Alex Jones esque news yeah. host, the way Gerber presents it, because that's a guy who kind of instigates all this, and he's doing it for entertainment. Like he, that's basically his whole thing is that he's he's basically encouraging this deranged man to go and do more killings and to go after certain targets and everything. So if there is a moral, it's that that guy dies. That one, he actually does suffer. He gets blown up. Um, so, you know, <laughs> that's like the one one bit of light in the story is that the Alex Jones as character gets brutally annihilated too. But otherwise, everything is just this long realm of destruction. And there's a great part in there that brings in the first Gulf War too. Mm-hmm. And he's angry at the fools who protest against the Gulf War Gulf War for selfish reasons too, which is fascinating too because he's getting inside the mindset of it's it's not an illiberal not an illiteral or excuse me illiberal uh, approach to to the war. I had friends who expressed things at the time, and you can still see elements of that today in American discourse where we're talking about you have the wrong reason to be angry about us getting involved in the war, or as a as a uh, person of privilege, you have no right to protest against people who are in a lower social class than you going to war because you're not really directly affected by it. And he touches on that well in here. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, for a book that came out close to 30 years ago, it's remarkably timeless and prescient. Yeah, yeah. Is it sort of the culmination of a lot of the themes he was working on throughout his comics career? Well, I think that Gerber was always a writer who wrote about the outsiders whose characters were not, uh, who wouldn't fit social norms. But I don't think he ever wrote a character that was quite as no. I, I know he never wrote a character who was as, as extreme as this character. Um, yeah, that's the thing I was going to ask you two too, because I think both of you have a, a deeper knowledge of Gerber and his works. Um, but to me, this this comic feels completely unlike any other Gerber comic. Like, there's not really absurdity to it. Um, the tone is not very comic. Uh, it 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 feels like the one and only comic he did like this, which is why it's so fascinating to me. But I mean, am I, am I right in that perspective or do you think that it fits in with other works that he's done? Reading, reading through the man thing again, there's a lot of moments of just despair in that book of, of people being uh, shunted to the side, being misunderstood and, trying to fight their way back in to a degree, but there, there's of, of people being abused, people being um, castigated. People, it's not a happy place ever. No. There's even a, a death of a clown who kills himself uh, by putting a gun in his mouth, right? Yes. <laughs> and he came back to the grittiness in society over and over again too i mean omega has scenes that are set in rundown tenements with rats crawling over everything in fact there's a when um valkyrie runs away in defenders um she escapes from prison and is living in this rat infested hellhole where a young child is is being attacked by rats so yeah i mean there's a lot of despair in gerber's work a lot of like societal satire about basically how fucked up 1970s New York in particular was. I, I always come back to how he ends his run on Man-Thing, mm-hmm. where he into the comic book. Um, and uh, I can't remember the name of the magician. Um, Korek. Yes, thank you. <laughs> he says that, um, what's it, that he says to Gerber that he wants him to write the portrait of a man's innermost being or something like that. Uh, and that's the purpose behind his run on man thing. It's just this wild bit because there's, yeah, I'm kind of lost on it actually. <laughs> <laughs> but I think with stuff like that, I think also the reason why it seems different to me is because in those, you get these moments of like levity and like weird stuff, you know, it, it were because even like that Hell Cow issue that I mentioned before, like there's some dark shit in that too. I mean, most of the Howard the Duck stuff has some pretty dark things going on. Yeah. But um, 
there's also like fun and absurdity and fool killer has like none of that it's like mm-hmm. gone <clears throat> how old was he when he was doing fool killer well he was born in uh, wait i have it uh 1947 so fool killer was he was 43 at the time he'd been through a lot obviously um lot how, of, uh, how old was he when he died he died um uh so he was uh, about 60. Hmm. he had a rare lung disorder that um that killed him unfortunately and he was writing up until the very end he's got a, a actually pretty fun dr fate storyline that he worked on right until he passed away and and he also was trying to finish up the man thing graphic novel too right yeah that infernal man thing that we reviewed many years ago daniel right right but yeah the element of despair in his work is very strong and um i mean that's it, especially reading that in the man thing you can really see that this is a lot of what he was dealing with in his everyday life he was kind of tortured by his own work or maybe tortured by the world he lived in. He was just a very sensitive person. And um, a lot a lot of the thing a lot of terrible things happened to children in his work. Yeah. Yeah, that's mm. true. Mm-hmm. I didn't think about that, but you're right. Yeah. Especially Omega the Unknown, which was like yeah. one of his most personal works. Yeah, the work that really affected me more than any other comic I think I've ever read. Yeah, um, where yeah, a lot of bad things happen to children. So, uh, you know, he didn't talk much about his childhood that, that we could find for the Gerber Conversations book. Um, he really just talks about his early adulthood. Honestly, um, I know he made uh, like science fiction films. He has a great article from Super Eight Filmmaker from 1974 that's about how comic creation is similar to uh, movie creation. And how you set up scenes and deliver other material like that. Um, so we know he had that as part of his life. But um, no, the only thing I really know, frankly, is that um, he he grad he went to three different universities in in uh, the St. Louis area, and graduated and got a job in advertising, which he hated. But aside from that, there, there's um, I wasn't able to uncover very much at all about what he did. I mean, uh, aside from the fact that you can assume as a long-time, lifelong comic book fan that he was at least, he obviously felt like a bit of an outsider. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, the fa- and the fact that like his, his most personal works are all about outsiders, whether it's Destroyer Duck or Fool Killer or Man-Thing especially, mm-hmm. Man-Thing has to be like the ultimate outsider. And then like even late in life, like his big project late in life was Hard Time which is about a kid who um, basically participates in the Columbine-type shooting, and the sent to jail is basically treated as an outsider in jail, too. Um, it, it's pretty clear that he saw himself apart from others, but he was no Kurt Gerhardt. I mean, he had girlfriends. There was, I, I know, at least three or four girlfriends he has, we mentioned in the book, and seems to have, you know, extremely strong respect for everybody who he seems to, who he interacts with. Um, one of it, in fact, there's one of his girlfriends he talks about and he's like, he goes out of his way in interviews to praise her writing. So um, I don't think there's any of the elements of outsiderness in the way he treated people. I think it's just like his inner being was always saw himself as an outsider. Yeah. And I mean, he, he was definitely an outsider within comics too, right? Because he, after Howard the Duck, it seemed like, or after the battle over Howard the Duck, it seemed like he he kind of had a lot of issues with with fitting in in comics and getting the same acclaim that some of the other writers that had come up around the same time as him got. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he also, I mean, a lot of the titles that he seemed to get after that just seemed like castoffs. Like I'm looking at it, and it's like he did like some Marvel Comics presents stuff. That's actually the second uh, Man-Thing series he did. Right, yeah. The Forgotten Man-Thing series he did in the 90s. And then he was on Sensational She-Hulk for a bit, Cloak and Dagger, Toxic Crusaders. So it seemed like, you know, they didn't really, 
he didn't really get to do big things. And I see that he tried to do a pitch with Frank Miller, of all people, which I cannot even imagine a Frank Miller and Steve Gerber collaboration. But apparently they had a proposal to revamp DC's trinity of Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, which I want to live in the universe where that happens. (laughs) (laughs) So the Wonder Woman series was actually listed in an Amazing Heroes uh, preview. In 1984, it's in the. I, I just found it here. That's it. I have way too much shit on my laptop, right? But it <laughs> makes sense because I have this book coming out. Um, January 15th, 1984, Amazing Heroes 39. Beginning probably in the late summer of 1984, there will be two Wonder Woman comic series. The new one will be sold through direct sales outlets only. It will be written by Steve Gerber, who will also act as consulting editor on the current Wonder Woman comic book. Um, I'm trying to find the like the exact pitch. It's a little vague about well, so, what the exact. So pitch the pitch is. that they had was, uh, and this is from Brian Cronin at Comic Book Legends Revealed. Apparently, the three titles were going to be called by the line name of Metropolis, and each character was going to be defined by a single word or phrase. So Amazon was going to be the Wonder Woman one, written by Gerber. Dark Knight was going to be the Miller one, and then they were going to collaborate together on. Superman, and they're not sure what the title of that would have been, but something playing off of Man of Steel. So, so yeah, that would have been truly fascinating. I guess we only got Dark Knight out of that. Gerber states the series' major theme should once again be the relationship between men and women and women's struggle in a man-ruled world. A product of another culture, Wonder Woman is an outsider in man's world. Not only does she regard herself as such, but so does anyone with a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. Her very existence threatens the fundamental rationale of a male-dominated society. She's amply capable of coping with man's world, but she will never cease to be appalled and astonished at at its casual cruelty, its lack of discipline and order, its compulsion to cast nature as its enemy, and of course, its oppression of women. It's like, wow, that just sounds so interesting. Such a great lost storyline. Can you imagine yeah. this? This take a Wonder Woman that's really like about uh, upending the the casual way that we take for granted modern American society. Yeah, that would have been really great. And instead, we what that would have been. So the the timeline for that would have been when John Byrne took it over, right? <laughs> oh, no, Byrne. The Burns Alpha run where she goes to work at a Taco Bell that comes later. Um, basically, this was the pitch for, it was before Crisis, but it would have ended up taking the place of the George Perez Wonder Woman. Okay, all right. Which is a very good run. Yeah, that's a good, yeah. I, I couldn't remember whether or not that was the, if that would have been John Byrne or Perez. I was rem- trying to remember. Yeah, and, and I then, think. But Byrne took over Man of Steel, or did the Superman reboot. Right. Right, exactly. And then Batman kind of wandered for a little bit, but Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns ended up being the book that kind of revolutionized the character, of course. Yeah, and year one. Yeah, and year one. Oh, by the way, I was going to, coming back to Fool Killer, um, you mentioned Catwoman year one, and J.J. Mm-hmm. Birch, who's also known as Joe Brzezowski. Uh, that art was like, um, I, I was really reminded of David Mazzucchelli on Batman yes. year one in certain yeah. places. Yeah. Which There's I think a, was intentional, because Catwoman Year One is a direct uh, sequel to Batman Year One. And it actually shows you, uh, I have like a, an essay that I, I need to complete at some point about it, but it, it actually shows you stuff that's happening in Batman Year One, but from Catwoman's perspective. I don't think I've ever read that story. Oh, you got to read it. It's great. Um, okay. And, and it's written by, uh, I'm spacing on her name. Mindy Newell, I think. Who was an underrated artist or writer at the time? Yeah, I was curious about what happened to her with with comics, but it looks like she went into media, like did better, better stuff. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Mindy Newell. That sounds right. I'm looking it up now too. Um, but yeah, and so the, kind of like on that note too, um, the other thing that Gerber did after 
like the Howard the Duck stuff for a little bit. He went into like writing for animation for a while too, right? Wasn't mm-hmm. that where he ended up? Yeah, he wrote yeah, a he, lot of G.I. Joe's. Yes, yeah. G.I. Joe was the show he was most known for. He also wrote Toxic Crusaders and some others, which is why he ended up getting the uh, gig writing the comics. Right. And, um, yeah, I, well, and of course, um, more than anything, he's known for Thunder of the Barbarian. Yes. Which, if you drop the name Steve Gerber at a random comic convention, they'd probably think of that first now. Um, I Have you either of you ever seen Thunder? I've never seen it, to be honest. I, I watched Thunder when I was a kid. I, I loved it. Okay. But yeah, he, he so he I didn't realize that he also wrote for Star Trek The Next Generation. And he uh, he won an Emmy for his writing on New Batman and Superman Adventures. So it seems like he he did better in the animation field. But he kept coming back to comics because he he had all the Malibu stuff, like he co-created Sludge. And um, the thing that I remember most from his post Marvel career is the series Nevada. Which is yeah. Have either of you read that? No. Oh yeah, of Dan, course I've you read would it. Love it. You have to read it. <laughs> it okay. is a Daniel Elkin comic in every way. And the reason I love this, the the origin of the character, this is from the wiki, is from a Howard the Duck story that contained a mandatory fight scene between a Las Vegas chorus girl and ostrich in a standing lamp. And apparently Neil <laughs> Neil Diamond had made a comment on uh, the CompuServe comics forum that he wanted to see the full story of that. And so Gerber pitched that to Karen Berger when she had approached him about doing Vertigo stuff. But yeah, it is it is a very Elkin comic. So. <laughs> well, I'll have to check it out now. It, it's really pretty incredible. It's about and, a woman and her pet ostrich and their dimension-spanning adventures. Um, there's a great sequence where she goes back to ancient Egypt and is hailed yeah. as a goddess. Yeah. Um, and it's, fighting it's, against an officer with a lava lamp for a head. <laughs> <laughs> what is the title of this again? Nevada. Nevada. Okay. And it's Phil Winslade who does the art on it, who I, I think is under underappreciated in comics. I was into a lot of yeah. this stuff around that time. Good call out. Yeah, Phil Winslade's like just an amazing artist. So it's got that perfect, that very realistic feel, which really makes the strangeness feel even more um, spectacular. Yeah, it's great stuff. Great yeah, stuff. He did that Garth Ennis comic, uh, Goddess, which is a Vertigo one. It, it's so weird. Like, even by Garth Ennis standards, it's a weird, weird comic. Um, but yeah, definitely check out Nevada, Daniel. I think you'll like it a lot. You, you have sold me. And I will. I just I found Catwoman here on on Comicsology. That didn't come out till 1989. It looks like. Yeah, but, that's correct. Okay. Oh, it's got the same kind of dirty J.J. Birch Joe Brzezowski art that I loved in in Fool Killer. Yeah, it, yeah, and it's interesting because Birch has like such a chameleon style. Like he's able to do a lot of different stuff. So like his material and other comics, it's a lot of times you're like, is this the same person? Um, but yeah, the combo of Catwoman Year One and Fool Killer is like, that's why I like his stuff. A lot of his other work is a little too, um, he kind of has that issue that, uh, what's the one who did the um, Encounter X stuff with Cable, uh, not Goran Parlov, but the, he, do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, I think so. He did that really weird cable series where cable it's where he goes around and he's like basically like a a soldier for hire and it's supposed to be like kind of a a commentary on um, basically American imperialism. Uh, So it did not do very well. Like Ariel, Ariel Olivetti. Is that the guy? No, no. It's he's, he also did Morrison's new X-Men. Um, God, why can't I remember this right now? Um, I, I feel like I should remember it too. It's, it, but I, I know the era that you mean. It's like the, the work that came out in the early 2000s in the Cable series where they made him like a soldier of fortune as opposed yes. to this time lost guy. Yes. Yeah, I remember that run. Oh, here it is. Um, Igor Cordy. Yes, thank you. That's, yeah, that guy. Um, but yeah, J.J. Birch has like this similar thing to happen with, with both of them where they, they started taking on more projects and 
they started getting more rushed. And you can definitely tell, like, in the comics that they're doing, because Igor has been open about it in interviews and, like, talked about, like, the, like, how he basically stopped doing comics because he didn't like how bad his art was becoming as a result of having to hit these deadlines. So he just stopped doing it. Um, but he did that Greg Rucka Black Widow series that is just really bad. Yeah, I remember that being awful. Um, yes. So, Daniel, what? you've been you've been quiet. So, what's well, because you guys are talking about cable. I mean, I got okay. <laughs> well, let's move it back. So, as an English teacher, oh yeah, you spent a lot of time with adolescents who were, you know. In some ways, the not the audience, but can emphasize, empathize, I guess, with a lot of what Bull Killer went through and a lot of what Gerber writes about, especially in a story like uh, The Kid's Day Out, um, you know, in Giant Size Man Thing number four, mm-hmm. which, again, is sadly part of the greatest, uh, maybe one of the greatest comics of the decade, despite its terrible name. Um, how do you think they would react to reading this material? I... I... You know, I, I read this one specifically because I remember connecting with it last time we talked about Man-Thing. And I was I was doing the same thing that you just asked. W- would kids today feel about it? And I, I think it's dated to a certain degree. I don't think it holds up quite as well as it did when you and I were younger. Mm-hmm. Um, but the trying to think how to say this exactly the the pain that Gerber expresses in that book I think will still resonate with a lot of people of of feeling bullied uh Mm -hmm. feeling um the outsider again and just just the casual cruelty that people uh, put on each other all the time I think Mm -hmm. those things still exist but the story itself, I think, is a little, maybe come across a little ham-fisted at this point. Okay. Is that kind of a change in styles then? Yeah. What, what, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, did, did Gerber write the Man-Thing issue where it's the, the black man is running through the swamp trying to get away from the cops who are trying to kill him? Yeah, that's one of his earlier issues. It's like fear 14 or 15. Okay. I haven't read that one in a long time, but I feel like, because that's one I read as a kid somehow. I don't know how. Um, and I, because that one is about police injustice and they're going and they're basically just trying to kill this man. And he's like running through the swamp and uh, Man-Thing winds up like tagging along with him. And at first mm-hmm. he's like afraid of Man-Thing and then he tries to get Man-Thing to like kill the cops for him. And Man-Thing won't. And he ends up getting shot and then man thing attacks the cops that feels like a very like kind of uh too little too late type uh story that feels like it fits in with today and how we just let people suffer and then don't do anything about it and then take out our rage in the wrong ways i don't know where i was going with that i kind of lost my (laughs) i realized i was like i haven't read that comic in a really long time i don't know if i'm even getting it right but but you know the issue i'm talking about right you you are mostly getting it right yeah i was actually just reading that a day or two ago so prep for this um the the one that uh the it's issues nine and ten the ones that stick out to me the ezekiel torque and dog d-a-w-g dog and the fact that uh the villain is this is Ezekiel's wife's jealousy over dog becomes as she dies, she sends that jealousy and hatred out into the world and it becomes like a demon and starts infesting trees and alligators and all these things to try and kill yeah. dog. <laughs> and it's just this crazy, crazy story that is moments of uh, uh, just real touching sweetness, but also this horrible, horrible rage uh, about it's so wild that I, I will, I think I will come back to those two issues over and over again. Yeah, there, there's this over the topness to some of these stories that 
it just felt feels very 1970s comics. Yeah. And, and, and that part, even I had trouble rereading because it just feels so absurdly much. It's bonkers. It's bong. It's wild. Yeah. Weird, wild, wacky stuff. Um, I don't think Gerber ever encountered a, a comic where he couldn't throw in literally everything. At some point, <laughs> you know, every issue just feels like, well, I did this last issue, and I need to just go even crazier now. So, uh, what's he, so Daniel? Is that your favorite Gerber work? Um, probably. I also like the last issue of Man Thing that he did, the twenty-two, where he puts himself in it. And oh yeah, yeah. And it's just he ends it by saying, "No way am I going to script this." Here, just it's he's writing a letter to his editor, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what this whole comic is: is just this letter recapping his entire run on. Uh, man thing and sort of explaining why he's no longer going to be writing man thing right and then yeah, it's just this crazy thing again he liked to do a lot of those like self-insertions and stuff too i've noticed well that's a theme throughout all his work yeah i mean there's a character in howard the duck called paul same who's oh yeah and he does that over and over again well and even the original full killer his name is a, a riff on gerber's uh, pseudonym Reg Everbest. Yep. <laughs> so, but Gerber seemed to have a proxy in everything he did. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting. I can't think of any other writers who did that to the level that Gerber did. I mean, other than like Grant Morrison. That's true. Mm-hmm. Who like literally put himself in a comic to save himself from his own health or, or something, <laughs> right. depending on the story. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, and then there's plenty of other comic writers who love to insert Alan Moore into things. So right. got that. Seems like we get Alan Moore over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, and Stan Lee is probably the other one that gets put into comics by, by people a lot. By the way, the opening scenes to Captain Marvel where they uh, have a little tribute to Stan is Wonderful. It's probably the best thing about the movie. I heard the cat is great, too. The cat steals <laughs> the film. Uh, I think I think we kind of reached what I wanted to reach for a conversation about Gerber. Is there anything else you guys want to talk about? I, I'm looking forward to reading your book. Yeah, same here. Yeah, I'm really excited for that. So. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it'll be out in July. Um, be nice to get that one out the door and then... Um, if I have time today, I'm going to work on the intro to the McGregor book, which is like 80% done. Yeah, I, that's, that's the other one I was wondering how long it could possibly be before you do a book on, because I know how how important McGregor is in, in your interest there. And it seems like there's finally, like thanks to the Black Panther movie, like a revived interest in him and in Billy Graham. Uh, mm-hmm. There was that wonderful Sean Howe piece in the New York Times about about Graham. Did you read that? It was last year. No, no, I got to seek that out. Yeah, it's fantastic. He did like a whole thing on like Graham and how important he was to uh, to the Black Panther mythos and especially to the elements of the the movie. But it talks about Don a lot too and like their collaboration. So I'll send you a link to it. Okay. Yeah, Don talks a lot about how Billy was a Renaissance man. He was into yeah. jazz. He had he was a musician himself. He uh, didn't just produce comics. He, he was a writer. He's just an overall this creative force who just never stopped. And um, Don and he bonded really tightly. And um, to this day, he talks about how he's his favorite collaborator. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think his daughter is like trying to start. Um, she set up like a Facebook page for Billy Graham and his art. Mm-hmm. And I think that she's been trying to get like a museum or something together to like archive more of his stuff. Um, so she's been posting like finds from that. So you should definitely check that out. Uh, there's some great stuff on there. Thanks for joining today, guys. 
Thanks for listening to this week's Classic Comics Cavalcade. I enjoyed doing something uh, different this week and I hope you enjoyed it as well. It was fun to dig deep into individual comics for a change and then have a more free-willing discussion rather than my kind of common lecture approach that uh, we've done a lot in the past. Um, it was fun to really explore Steve Gerber's work. If you're interested in finding copies of uh, Full Killer, unfortunately you're going to have to search for those on in the back issue bins. Gerber's Man Thing is available in collected editions, both digitally and in hardcover. Uh, and also uh, Steve Gerber Conversations, my new book that's uh, done in collaboration with two other very talented cre- uh, writers, is available right now via Amazon.com or through University Press of Mississippi. The book will be out in July and contains a slew of interviews with him that have never been republished. Show notes are available at classiccomics.tumblr.com. And please leave us notes and feedback on iTunes or whatever other service you listen to us on. Um, It's been a pleasure putting this week's episode together, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. Thanks. Oh, thank you.